Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Sam, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Paul Hesberg. Dr. Hesberg is an author and research ecologist at the Pacific Northwest Research Station for the U.S. Forest Service. He has studied historical and modern era forests of the Inland West for the last 32 years and has published extensively in leading national and international journals. His work documents large changes in forest conditions and how these changes, along with climate change, have set the stage for large and severe wildfires. His most recent book, Making Transparent Environmental Management Decisions, offers compelling new insights into using modern-day decision support systems to plan for forest restoration. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Hesberg. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so we like to ask all our guests to talk about an inflection point, um, a place where they had to pivot or adjust in their career or personal lives. Um, can you share such a moment with me? I've had inflection points throughout my entire career. They're to be expected rather than surprised by. I started out in college studying medicine. I didn't know what I wanted to do, and my folks thought I would make a good physician, so I went that way as a chemistry major. I realized I was good at it, but I didn't love it, and so I changed my mind. Inflection point one. I remembered that I loved being in the woods. I loved working with fish and wildlife and geology. And so I went rummaging around the campus to find out which of those I connected with most. And I found forest science. So my bachelor's degree was in forest science. And while I was going through forest science, I connected with a professor who taught forest pathology and he really ignited me. And so I took a hard right and went into forest pathology in my doctoral work. And as I started doing work in forest pathology, I started studying how insects and pathogens in forest environments operate. And I realized that they respond to patterns of forest structure and composition, almost like reading a surface. And the surface could either resist or allow movement of these processes. And I started being interested in how patterns of the forest drive processes. And so I took a hard left into landscape ecology research and so on. There were a number of them. And now, 41 years later, I uh, probably made five shifts that look about like that. That's, gr that's great to hear, especially, especially as a college student. I'm sure many of our listeners who are about my age um, are, are curious about kind of when they are doing something that they may be good at, um, and, but not necessarily something that they love, um, it might it might be hard to kind of veer off that path to, to find a new one. And just just to hear your story is is inspiring. And thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, and in some of your previous uh, talks, you've said that the Pacific Northwest Research Station uh, in Washington is is just five blocks east of heaven. And I was just curious why 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 you say that. I live in Wenatchee, Washington, and you really should visit mm -hmm. to substantiate my claim for yourself. Okay. But I live where the Cascade Mountains dive down to the Columbia River and meet the Shrub Steppe. And right out my kitchen window are the Cascade Mountains. I can walk from my home on surface streets onto public lands, and I can mountain bike or ride horses uh, in the foothills around my town. My oak camp is up the hill 22 minutes from my home, where I downhill ski is 20 minutes away from my home. There's fly fishing all around me. And so if you love outdoor 
activities as my family does. We, we live in Mecca. It's <laughs> great to hear. Um, and so you've conducted extensive work with forests, um, specifically on the West Coast and in the West. Um, I'm just curious, what is some? what are some of the favorite things that have kind of drawn you to um, forests, specifically in the areas you've worked in? The forests of the Western U.S. are so large and so extensive and that relates to the colonization history of the U.S. When uh, forest industry took hold in the U.S., the forests of the East Coast were where they started, and many of those forests were harvested, basically liquidated by clear-cutting. And the forests of the Great Lakes region were the next place that those industries went. And back in uh, during the Teddy Roosevelt era, he realized that the massive forests of the U.S. were being liquidated, and so th- he and a couple of his friends figured out how to develop the national forest system, what they call the system of forest reserves, in those days to protect the remaining lands. And the remaining lands they protected were west of the Mississippi River in the west. So we have areas where there are two, three, four, five million acres surrounding a cluster of towns. And this is public lands, just gorgeous forests. So when I finished forestry school and I wanted to go on and do graduate work in forestry, I realized I had to go where the forests were, and they were in the West. Mm -hmm. So I moved out to Oregon State University to go to grad school, and I never went home. Um, And so a lot of your work deals with wildfires and and specifically – um, how what the steps we can take to to mitigate the damage they cause and to and to ensure a sustainable um, future regarding forests. I was just wondering, um, first, can you explain the term megafire because that that comes up a lot in, in your work and your presentation. You bet. Megafires are really big fires. Uh, quantitative, we we say a megafire is a hundred thousand acres or more, so it's a really big fire. Mm-hmm. And they're megafires typically because they burn a lot of acres in a few short days. Okay, and and kind of going off that, how, to my understanding, they're becoming they're becoming more frequent um, in in the in the recent in, in recent years. And I was just curious as to why, if you can give a brief explanation as to why they're becoming more uh, more more frequent. You bet. So. Wildfires uh, were really common in the western U.S. in most Mm. forest types. And what that basically means is the landscapes, they're born in fire and they're tended by fire and they die in fire. Fire is just a frequent player in most of those systems. And after the 1910 Big Burn, we started keeping fires out of the system for a century. And so you can imagine forests that are tended by fire missing so many fires over the course of a century or more would have a lot of dead wood accumulate, forest area increased, and forest density increased. And that literally set the table for conditions that are conducive to more severe wildfires and bigger fires. And so um, kind of going off what you just said, it reminded me that in a lot of your presentation you say there's no future without fire and smoke. Um, and I was wondering if you can kind of go into detail on, on what that means and how that plays a role in today's you landscaping. Bet. That's, that's not an empty bluff. We had a lot of help during the 20th century putting out fires. Starting in about 1930, we got, 1934, 1935, we got really amazingly good at it. And for 50 years, we put out nearly all fires. Most of the ignitions across the United States. What we didn't know 
was between 1935 and about 1985, we were in a very cool, moist period of the climate. And so the climate helped us be really good at putting fires out. What happened after 1985 was significant climate warming and drying in a windier climate. And that made us more vulnerable during this period when we'd massively excluded fires to having fires that would grow big and fast. And so what's basically happened uh, since 1985 is despite excellent fire suppression workforce and efforts, burned area is increasing uh, as we add billions and billions of dollars to fire suppression. So the quality of the work is still excellent. The problem is we're putting out 95 to 98% of wildfires during the moderate fire weather, and almost all the acres are burning under extreme fire weather. So we miss 2 to 5% of the ignitions, and all the acreage is being burned primarily during these extreme days. And um, so I'm from the Bay Area, and right now um, there's, you know, a a very long-term power outage that has just started um, purposefully in order to prevent wildfires. And that's something that um, I can't remember happening growing up. Is, is that going to be something that's going to continue into the future? Is that what's going to start having to happen more frequently in order to um, protect um, vulnerable areas from wildfires? Or is there, is there a more manageable plan um, kind of set in place or methodologies? There, we have a lot of options. It's a really clever question. Mm -hmm. Right now, uh, power companies' feet are being held to the fire because they're the source of some ignitions during especially windy periods when lot power lines may go down or branches may come out and take them down. But uh, we have a lot of other options available to us besides litigating with power companies. And one of those options is that we start managing our fuels again so that when we do get ignitions, we get more predictable fire behavior. The problem is that we all need to and have quite a bit of work to do ahead of us to be able to take care of keeping fires out of the woods for 100 years. And so, so it's a very much a shared responsibility to take care of the fuels. And then each time we have an ignition, the consequences of those ignitions will be a different story. Okay, and um, just as someone um, who who also loves the outdoors, um, where I grew up, you know, I've lived I live very close to Muir Woods. I just I love um, being in an area with with dense um, forestry and, and and trees and whatnot. Um, but I I don't have the same knowledge that you do regarding um, kind of this preventative measures that we can take in order to ensure that um, we can preserve those lands, whether that be protect, protecting them from wildfires. Um, or other dangers, what, what advice would you give to um, people my age, people of all ages who also share a love of the outdoors and of forests but, um, and want to contribute um, but are kind of deterred by, again, they, they see it as maybe it's the power companies that are causing these things um, and they don't have the means to kind of deal with issues like that. But what, what, what steps can they take in order to kind of help the issue? The, the primary thing that a lot of people can learn, and it's actually why I'm doing these traveling presentations, is to become really informed about the historical role of wildfire and how it was a frequent visitor to most of our forests. And then to learn what wildfire did in terms of creating variability in forest conditions. And I think what they'll do when they bump up against that information is they'll come to realize that many of our forests don't look at all like they did when we inherited them 
when uh, European American settlers and other sorts came to this continent and uh, started living on the landscape and developing it and that sort of thing. So learn about wildfire, learn about its many faces, uh, learn about how it typically would change and influence the forest over big space and time and come to understand tremendous changes have occurred and the opportunity to create a more favorable role for wildfire. One of the key things is we've learned since 1985 is that wildfire is coming back to forests with a vengeance. We have the option to determine how it comes back to the forest. Is it going to be devastating or can we actually work with fire, live with fire, literally live with a dragon? Mm -hmm. And um, before, before I, I, I prepared for this interview, I was always under the impression that the rise in wildfires was caused either by, um, by mostly humans, whether that be power companies um, increasing the rate at which you know, they were causing igniting wildfires or whether that be humans um, just carelessly accidentally starting wildfires. But after doing some research, it seems like the forestry industry kind of really changed the nature of forests, like you said earlier, made them more dense, made them more, I guess, vulnerable to wildfires. And I was wondering if you can speak towards that. How have our forests changed? Um, and how much of it is due to the, the foresting industry and, uh, and, and um, other factors? That's what my era of megafires talk is about mm -hmm. tonight. I, uh, I get into the history of how a whole variety of factors work together to cause the changes that we experience. And none of them were done maliciously. A lot of them were done in ignorance. And so an awful lot of it is looking in the rearview mirror and finding, much to our surprise, this sort of conspiracy of factors that work together to change the way the woods works and the way it looks and then how fire can move through different forests. But uh, things that you wouldn't expect were hugely influential. Uh, cattle and sheep grazing, for example, was a very early influence in the 1800s because the cattle and sheep ate the grasses and the herbs, and that had been the historical conveyor belt for spreading fire. So it was actually grazing was a very early influence on how much fire was on the landscape. And nobody did that to stop fire. They did that to grow food. Um, the development of roads and railroads, they functioned as fuel brakes. Nobody put them out there as fuel brakes, but that's how they functioned. And so many things like that. And then along came the timber industry, especially after the World War II with the invention of the internal combustion engine and chainsaws, you started to see timber removed and people were removing the largest trees because that's where the most wood was on an individual stick. They had no idea that taking the big trees would be taking those that are wildfire and climate change adapted and, and uh, lots of small trees that were fire intolerant seeded in in the gaps left by the big trees. So there were a lot of things that unintentionally worked together to change the density and the location and the amount of forest. And these factors all worked together to change the way now how an ignition would happen. And the fact is where you have lots of humans, you have lots more ignitions, unintentional most for the most part. And when you add those to the natural ignitions, we have a lot of exposure to new fires. And um, so in your book, you talk about um, implementing certain systems to, to you know, better forest restoration. And then um, you talk a lot about landscape restoration. Um, what does that process look like for, um, 
for the foreseeable future? Where, where do you see um, landscape restoration 25 years from now, 50 years from now, um, with these natural effects along with other effects going on? It's, it's really not up to me. I, my lab works at developing tools to evaluate how broken landscapes might be. Mm. And the storylines for change differ tremendously from place to place. Mm -hmm. So what affected change is very, very different from forest to forest and geographic area to area. So uh, it's really going to be up to us. Foresters are, are going to be able to say, we have these tools, we have these methods, and we can change the way fires will come to these forests. But if you stop and think about it, uh, we're polarized in society today on so many issues, and it's going to be up to us to, to decide collectively what we want and what we're willing to do to get there. So I would argue, and I think this was another pivot moment in my life, at about age 35, I looked at my resume, I was uh, being paneled for promotion, and I thought to myself, have I really done enough with what I've learned to share it with people where it might really make a difference in society? And I gave myself a low grade on that, and I, that's when I started developing this with colleagues. And I realized that if people knew that they could actually have an impact by coming together, and making choices together about how they wanted their fires going forward, they're going to happen. Do you want them severe or do you want to manage? Do you want to act proactively or reactively? That's actually a, that's a social decision-making process. It's not ecology. It's sociology. It's politics. And so an awful lot will exist in the laps of you and me and the communities that we live in um, deciding our future, crafting it, designing it, or not. Um, and unfortunately, we only have time for one more question. One thing, um, it's going to be a little bit of a change of topic, but one thing um, I'm always curious about as a, as a college student interviewing people who have accomplished so much in their field and who have, um, who have learned so much in, in the work they've done is how do you personally define um, success for yourself? Um, and how would you help a college student um, like me or many of our listeners um, define define success for themselves when they are when they're trying to embark on these on these career paths and on these journeys? It's a it's a great question. I wish I'd had this conversation when I was your age with somebody um, because that kind of coaching is incredibly helpful. I would say the first thing is to find something you absolutely love and that you're really good at. Those two have to live together, those two ideas. And find work in those areas and be open to changing where you live and the kinds of things you're doing and who you're willing to work with. I made a number of moves in my career to finally get to a place where geographically I loved to live there and I was working in the forest that I wanted to work on and with people I really loved and respected. So be open to those kinds of changes and then keep your head down and do the work and do really good work. Each discipline you'll work in is, is the reputation business. And it's, it takes a lifetime to build a good reputation and you can wreck it in a day or a week. So a lot of it is keeping your head down and doing the work. Mm -hmm. And you just might find out that along the way you've learned enough to make a difference and then go make a difference with what you've learned. Well, great. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Hesberg. And um, to all our listeners, remember to stay hungry.